Chapter Thirty Two of The Old Man in the Corner. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Old Man in the Corner by Baroness Orzee. Chapter Thirty Two A High Bred Gentleman. The central figure in the coroner's court that day was undoubtedly the Earl of Brocklesby in deep black, which contrasted strongly with his florid complexion and fair hair. Sir Marmaduke Ingersoll, his solicitor, was with him, and he had already performed the painful duty of identifying the deceased as his brother. This had been an exceedingly painful duty, owing to the terribly mutilated state of the body and face, but the clothes and various trinkets he wore, including a signet ring, had fortunately not tempted the brutal assassin, and it was through them chiefly that Lord Brocklesby was able to swear to the identity of his brother. The various employees at the hotel gave evidence as to the discovery of the body, and the medical officer gave his opinion as to the immediate cause of death. Deceased had evidently been struck at the back of the head with a poker or heavy stick, the murderer then venting his blind fury upon the body by battering in the face and bruising it in a way that certainly suggested the work of a maniac. Then the Earl of Brocklesby was called, and was requested by the coroner to state when he had last seen his brother alive. "'The morning before his death,' replied his lordship. "'He came up to Birmingham by an early train, and I drove up from Brocklesby to see him. I got to the hotel at eleven o'clock, and stayed with him for about an hour. "'And that is the last you saw of the deceased? "'That is the last I saw of him,' replied Lord Brocklesby." He seemed to hesitate for a moment or two, as if in thought whether he should speak or not, and then to suddenly make up his mind to speak, for he added, I stayed in town the whole of that day, and only drove back to Brocklesby late in the evening. I had some business to transact, and put up at the Grand, as I usually do, and dined with some friends. Would you tell us at what time you returned to Brocklesby Castle? I think it must have been about eleven o'clock. It is a seven-mile drive from here. "'I believe,' said the coroner after a pause, during which the attention of all the spectators was riveted upon the handsome figure of the young man as he stood in the witness-box, the very personification of a high-bred gentleman. "'I believe that I am right in stating that there was an unfortunate legal dispute between your lordship and your brother. That is so.' The coroner stroked his chin thoughtfully for a moment or two. Then he added, in the event of the deceased claim to the joint title and revenues of the Genville being held good in the courts of law, there would be a great importance, would there not, attached to his marriage, which was to have taken place on the 15th? In that event there certainly would be. Is the jury to understand, then, that you and the deceased parted on amicable terms after your interview with him in the morning? The Earl of Brocklesby hesitated again for a moment or two, while the crowd and the jury hung breathless on his lips. There was no enmity between us, he replied at last. From which we may gather that there may have been, shall I say, a slight disagreement at that interview? My brother had unfortunately been misled by the misrepresentations, or perhaps the too optimistic views, of his lawyer. He had been dragged into litigation on the strength of an old family document which he had never seen, which, moreover, is antiquated, and owing to certain wording in it, invalid. I thought that it would be kinder and more considerate, if I were to let my brother judge of the document for himself. I knew that when he had seen it he would be convinced of the absolutely futile basis of his claim, and that it would be a terrible disappointment to him. That is the reason why I wished to see him myself about it, rather than to do it through the more formal, perhaps more correct, 
medium of our respective lawyers. I placed the facts before him with, on my part, a perfectly amicable spirit. The young Earl of Brocklesby had made this somewhat lengthy, perfectly voluntary explanation of the state of affairs in a calm, quiet voice, with much dignity and perfect simplicity, but the coroner did not seem impressed by it, for he asked very dryly, "'Did you part good friends?' "'On my side, absolutely so.' "'But not on his?' insisted the coroner. "'I think he felt naturally annoyed that he had been so ill-advised by his solicitors.' And you made no attempt later on in the day to adjust any ill feeling that may have existed between you and him? asked the coroner, marking with strange earnest emphasis every word he uttered. If you mean, did I go and see my brother again that day? No, I did not. And your lordship can give us no further information which might throw some light upon the mystery which surrounds the Honorable Robert de Genville's death? still persisted the coroner. I am sorry to say I cannot replied the Earl of Brocklesby, with firm decision. The coroner still looked puzzled and thoughtful. It seemed at first as if he wished to press his point further. Everyone felt that some deep import had lain behind his examination of the witness, and all were on tetterhooks as to what the next evidence might bring forth. The Earl of Brocklesby had waited a minute or two, then, at a sign from the coroner, had left the witness-box in order to have a talk with his solicitor. At first he paid no attention to the depositions of the cashier and hall-porter of the Castle Hotel, but gradually it seemed to strike him that curious statements were being made by these witnesses, and a frown of anxious wonder settled between his brows, whilst his young face lost some of its florid hue. Mr. Tremlett, the cashier at the hotel, had been holding the attention of the court. He stated that the Honorable Robert Ingram de Genville had arrived at the hotel at eight o'clock on the morning of the 13th. He had the room which he usually occupied when he came to the castle, namely number 21, and he went up to it immediately on his arrival, ordering some breakfast to be brought up to him. At eleven o'clock the Earl of Brocklesby called to see his brother and remained with him until about twelve. In the afternoon deceased went out, returned for his dinner at seven o'clock, in company with a gentleman whom the cashier knew well by sight, Mr. Timothy Beddingfield, the lawyer of Paradise Street. The gentlemen had their dinner downstairs, and after that they went up to the Honorable Mr. de Genville's room for coffee and cigars. "'I could not say at what time Mr. Beddingfield left,' continued the cashier, "'but I rather fancy I saw him in the hall at about 9.15 p.m. He was wearing an Inverness cape over his dress clothes and a Glengarry cap. It was just at the hour when the visitors who had come down for the night from London were arriving thick and fast. The hall was very full,' and there was a large party of Americans monopolizing most of our personnel, so I could not swear positively whether I did see Mr. Beddingfield or not then, though I am quite sure that it was Mr. Timothy Beddingfield who dined and spent the evening with the Honorable Mr. de Genville, as I know him quite well by sight. At ten o'clock I am off duty, and the night porter remains alone in the hall. Mr. Tremlett's evidence was corroborated in most respects by a waiter and by the hall porter. They had both seen the deceased come in at seven o'clock in company with a gentleman, and their description of the latter coincided with that of the appearance of Mr. Timothy Beddingfield, whom, however, they did not actually know. At this point of the proceedings, the foreman of the jury wished to know why Mr. Timothy Beddingfield's evidence had not been obtained, and was informed by the detective inspector in charge of the case that that gentleman had seemingly left Birmingham, but was expected home shortly. The coroner suggested an adjournment pending Mr. Beddingfield's appearance, 
but at the earnest request of the detective he consented to hear the evidence of peter tyrrell the night porter at the castle hotel who if you remember the case at all succeeded in creating the biggest sensation of any which had been made through this extraordinary and weirdly gruesome case it was the first time i had been on duty at the castle he said for i used to be night porter at bright's in wolverhampton but just after i came on duty at ten o'clock a gentleman came and asked if he could see the honourable robert de genville i said that i thought he was in but would send up and see the gentleman said it doesn't matter don't trouble i know his room twenty-one isn't it and up he went before i could say another word did he give you any name asked the coroner no sir what was he like a young gentleman sir as far as i can remember in an inverness cape and glengarry cap but i could not see his face very well as he stood with his back to the light and the cap shaded his eyes and he only spoke to me for a minute look all around you said the coroner quietly is there any one in this court at all like the gentleman you speak of an awed hush fell over the many spectators there present as peter tyrrell the night porter of the castle hotel turned his head towards the body of the court and slowly scanned the many faces there present for a moment he seemed to hesitate only for a moment though then as if vaguely conscious of the terrible importance his next words might have he shook his head gravely and said i wouldn't like to swear the coroner tried to press him but with true british stolidity he repeated i wouldn't like to say well then what happened asked the coroner who had perforce to abandon his point the gentleman went upstairs sir and about a quarter of an hour later he came down again and i let him out he was in a great hurry then he threw me a half crown and said good night and though you saw him again then you cannot tell us if you would know him again once more the whole porter's eyes wandered as if instinctively to a certain face in the court once more he hesitated for many seconds which seemed like so many hours during which a man's honour a man's life hung perhaps in the balance then peter tyrrell repeated slowly i wouldn't swear but coroner and jury alike i and every spectator in that crowded court had seen that the man's eyes had rested during that one moment of hesitation upon the face of the earl of brocklesby End of chapter 32